So today we are finishing chapter 15 of Genesis. We'll be in verses 7 through 21. If you're using a blue Bible from the center of the table, it is on page 12. Next week, um, we will be go, going through Genesis chapter 16. We will do the entire chapter next week, uh, verses 1 through 16. So write that down in your worship guide and be sure to read that, meditate on it, and study it some during the week if you would. So we divided chapter 15 up into two weeks. Lots of reasons for that. And if you were here and you know how long I preached last week, then you certainly understand why. Amen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. And we looked at a promise that God made to Abram about his descendants. And then we looked deeply into what the scripture teaches about how Abram and how all people can be made right with God. This week, we look at another promise God makes. And everything we looked at last week and everything we're looking at today probably happened in a time span of a few hours. Can't say for sure. But most, it kind of looks like it was happening in the evening and at some point in the night or in the middle of the night. So we're talking 12 to 24 hour period of time at most, uh, most likely. And... What's recorded in chapter 15 appears to be one conversation, really with two big things in the conversation. Last week was the promise of descendants. This week, it's the promise about land. Last week, the way Abram responded is similar to the way he responds this week. Last week, the way God responded to Abram's difficulty is similar to how God responds this week to Abram's difficulty. There's a lot of parallels between these two passages. As you read the scripture this week, I want you to pay attention to God's promises. And the promise that he makes in verse 7, it's not the first time he's talked about this. It's something that Abram has heard before. It's something we have heard before. And today we are going to see that the idea of covenant is going to be a big idea. It's going to be a big idea. This is not the first time in the Bible that we've seen a covenant. But... As you follow the biblical narrative, as you follow the drama of Scripture, what we do is is we look at the whole big picture from beginning to end as we see a God who makes and keeps covenant. We're going to see this again in two weeks heavily. It's going to be a huge theme in two weeks, and we're going to see it after that. That He is a God who makes and keeps covenants. So... Let's read together. Uh, I'll read uh, from verse 7 through 21 of Genesis 15. And he, that is God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there." And they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the piece, these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now this is the word of the Lord, and let's read it. Let's meditate on it quietly to yourself for a few minutes, and when the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion. Okay, it's time to begin, or continue, I should say. So, verse 7, verse 8. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that is Abram, says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? We see so early on here the kind, gentle, gracious way that God deals with Abram. In the previous few hours, God had reminded him of a promise he already knew. He said, Lord, how am I to know? And God takes him outside and says, look it up all the stars and and this is how you know. There was a sign, all the stars, and there was a word of promise last week. And this week, it starts out the exact same way. God speaks. He deals with Abram graciously. I'm so glad God is so patient with us. Because he would have taken me out a long time ago. And that's true for all of us in the room. He is patient with us. But he, he reminds Abram who he is. I am the Lord. And then he reminds Abram what he's done. I brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Do you remember Abram back in Genesis 12 verses 1, 2, and 3? I appeared to you and I said, hey, I want you to leave this land and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. God didn't even tell him at the time where he was going to go. He's like, I just want you to leave. And at some point in the future, I'm going to show you the land. So he makes reference here in verse 7 to that part of the journey. And he says, It again, at the end of verse 7, to give you this land to possess. And Abram says the same thing that he said last week. How am I to know that this promise is true? He needs something that we all need. I need it. You need it. We need assurance. For the first five or six years of my Christian life, I was never for sure that I was saved. There came a point in my walk with God where I realized that my salvation wasn't dependent on my performance, but it was dependent on what God did. And when that sunk into me and I had that assurance, I was able to live my life with so much more faith and confidence in God And just hope in general, it was easier for me to put sin to death. It was easier for me to do whatever it was that I thought God wanted me to do. My heart, our hearts crave 
long for assurance. My wife tells me every day that she loves me. And I've never had a reason to doubt her love. I I walk in full assurance of that. But every day when I hear it again, it feels good. It sits well with me. For me to hear again what I already know from the woman that I love most. It's always good for me. So Abram is seeking assurance. How am I to know that I shall possess this land? How am I to know, God, that this is true? And, and here's so God responds, verse 9. It's weird, okay? This is strange for us. Very strange. Bring me a heifer. A heifer is a female cow that's never had a calf. Bring me a heifer, three years old. Bring me a female goat, three years old. Bring me a ram, three years old. Bring me a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And that's all that Moses tells us that God said. Moses doesn't record anything else. Moses wrote this hundreds of years after it happened. But Moses just says that. He doesn't say that God told him what to do with it or anything. But in verse 10, Abram sacrifices these animals. He cuts them in half and he lays one half over here and he lays the other half on the other side and he makes two rows of them, one half of each animal on each side so that there's this walkway between them. But he doesn't cut the birds in half. People at my table were wondering along with me this week, why didn't the birds get cut in half? I couldn't find the answer to that, but someone at our table proposed the idea um, that maybe he never got to it because he was running the vultures off as they were swooping in on it. Maybe so. This is a narrative passage. We don't have all the details of everything that happened. So I, I got questions. I, I, I want to know details here. But Abram knew. Here's what's important. Abram knew that he was to sacrifice these animals. And so that's what he did. Verse 10, he brings all these animals to God. He cuts them in half and he lays each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. Verse 11 the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abram drove them away. Isn't it neat that in a passage where God makes such a big covenant that there's sacrifice that's associated also? And what you see when you look everywhere in the Bible over and over again is that whenever there's covenant, there's somewhere along with that. The idea of sacrifice is associated with that. So Abram obeyed God. He brought the sacrifice. And then in verse 11, he had to guard the animals. Okay? We've all seen deer that have been hit. They're on the side of the road and the vultures come in a few hours later to do what vultures do, right? Isn't that exactly what these birds were doing here? Isn't that what they were doing? And he chased off the predators. God is like doing something really special here. And then something's coming in to try to ruin it. How many of you, you've had God doing something special in your life and something swoops in and tries to get you distracted or tries to get you thinking screwed up and backwards like like there's an attack on you and on others when God is in the middle of doing something. And Abram here, he goes... And he chases them away. Something special is happening here. God told him 
to get these animals for a reason, and Abram is there, and he's waiting for it. Or he's still doing it, and the vultures came before he could get to those last two pitiful birds. There were so often something that tries to swoop in and mess things all up. So God um, is answering Abram's question here. And what's neat to me is that God is working with Abram to establish Abram's faith. We learn something about faith here. Abram believed God. We are, we are seeing and learning so much about faith. Abram's faith is struggling with God's promises. God doesn't cast him aside and find someone else to start over with. No, God deals gently and works with Abram and meets Abram where he's at. And what we see as God is doing this is that Abram's faith is as much God's project or more God's project than it is Abram's faith. The New Testament, and this is referenced in our catechism, the New Testament teaches us clearly that even faith is a gift from God. And here, God is working with Abram with his imperfect faith, and he is strengthening and establishing that faith. And... Every one of us in here who has known Christ for some amount of time has to say that this is how God has dealt with me. He is kind and gracious in that way. So we get to verse 12. The sun was going down. I'm assuming the vultures aren't there anymore. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, great dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring... I'm going to stop right there. All right. From this point on, Abram goes to sleep. And in verse 13, God says, Know for certain. For the rest of this passage, this is a one-way conversation. Abram is somehow in this deep sleep, maybe a trance. I, I don't know. He's observing... And he's hearing, he's taking it in, but, but there's no record that there's any participation here. Moses had, I'm sorry, Abram had been active. His activity stops. He ruins the vultures away, he goes to sleep, and then there's no more activity from Abram. That's over. So verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Hey, that's good news. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's talking about the exodus in Egypt. Okay, Abram eventually has a kid. His name is Isaac. Isaac has a kid. His name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 boys and a whole bunch of other kids. And while Jacob and those boys are alive, they go to Egypt. They become enslaved. 
They're there for 430 years. There's reference made here to four generations. And then God delivers them out of slavery. It's recorded in the book of Exodus. So God is telling them what's going to happen a few hundred years. Well, a couple hundred years probably before it happens. And notice there's a promise. Know for certain that your descendants will be enslaved, but that I will deliver them from their slavery. There's a promise. There's hardship for God's people. For Abram's descendants, there's hardship. There's exile. They're not in their homeland. um, There's slavery. There's affliction, as we see in verse 13. But then there's salvation. In verse 14, God says, I will bring judgment on the nation. He's talking about Egypt. And afterward, they, your descendants, will come out. God is saying to Abram, I'm going to judge my enemies. And I'm going to set my people free. (laughs) That's the gospel. Jesus has conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's conquered the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8 tells us. He's conquering his enemies. And then he's delivering his people. He's removing them from slavery. He's taking the chains off. We see salvation in the Old Testament promised ahead of time before it happens. And then in verse 14... When I deliver you, I'm going to bless you. (laughs) I'm going to bless you. And and this blessing just happens to be with a lot of the Egyptian stuff. And verse 16, you've got to wait for it. You've got to wait for it. How did Abram feel? I can't say for sure. But, you know, we've been speculating about Abram's age. I've been thinking in the 80s or maybe early 90s. I realized this week that in next week's passage, he's 86 years old. So since we've started with Abram, he's between the ages of 75 and he'll be 86 next week. Yeah, in our passage next week. So he's somewhere between the age of 75 and 86 here. His wife is 10 years younger. Okay, And he's in this land and it's supposed to be his, but there's all these other people. It's already hard to believe the promise of God. Well, here God says... I'm going to give you this land, but all your great-grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and and all of them, they're going to have to leave, and they're going to be gone for generations and hundreds of years, and I'm going to have to do incredible things to bring them back. But I am that kind of God, God says, and I'm going to bring them back because I'm a promise-keeping God. I am a covenant-keeping God. My plan and my counsel stand This hasn't happened yet, he's saying to Abram, but it's going to happen. You can count on it. I'm going to save your people, your descendants, when they're in trouble. I'm going to rescue them and deliver them when the time is exactly right. Why, couldn't, why did God have to wait 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. There's a, you can preach a whole sermon on that verse. 
God was going to judge the Amorite people. The Amorites were the people that joined with Abram to go and rescue Lot from the four evil kings back in the first half of Genesis 14. But yet the Amorites are a godless people, a sinful people, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, similar to that. You know, just as far as their orientation, it was not towards God. And he says, you know, we've got to wait for their sin to get to a certain point, and then God's going to judge them. And God later on had Joshua go in and destroy them. And so that's, that's many generations later, many hundreds of years later. So we get to verses 17 and 21. And we see this idea of covenant. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So covenants are similar to contracts. And some people say, well, they're the same thing and there's a case for that. Other people say, no, there's not the same thing. There are some differences. But there, there, there's multiple types of covenants, multiple types of contracts. We don't use the word covenant much these days outside of church and, and Bible uh, marriage covenant is probably one of the ways that we're most familiar with it. But we are familiar with the language of contract. <sighs> you know, I'm really glad I can sign a contract and I don't have to kill animals and walk through them. <laughs> Amen. I, I'm happy about that. And so what we see, just if you just look at the book of Genesis, you see covenants made between man and man. Between leader of a town, this king, that king, and another king. You see covenants that later on in Abram's life that he makes with other people, Abimelech mainly. Um, and Isaac does the same thing with Abimelech. But there's, there's these co- co- covenants where pledges are made between two parties. But then there are covenants made between God and man. And here's what's beautiful is that God is initiating this covenant. Abram didn't go to God and say, God, I need you. Would you come and do something for me? God God appeared to Abram and began making promises. So verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This word made. It means to cut. <laughs> well, you've already seen that today, haven't we? He cut three animals in half. It means to cut. He cut a covenant. And that, that Hebrew word that's translated made in verse 18 is used all throughout the Old Testament. I, can't, I don't recall how many places, but it's a bunch. A bunch of places where he made or he cut a covenant. Other times that word is just translated cut. He cut this, he cut that. Just different narrative passages throughout the Old Testament. But here it says he cut a covenant. Reminds me very much of the three animals that he just killed. That he just sacrificed. And there's two things that I want to point out in verses 17 through 21. As God makes this covenant... There's a word of promise. God clearly says something. Clearly speaks something. Something that can, you can grab hold of. Something that you can remember. Something that affects our lives. There's a word of promise. In addition to that, there's a sign. 
There is something that the senses outside of our mind, it's not, this is not only an intellectual realm that we're in here. God knows we're physical people. And here he said, or here he gives a sign that could be viewed and experienced not only in the intellect, but through the senses. Primarily, I believe, probably through sight as he sees the smoking fire pot and as he sees the torch. Here's the word of promise. Verse 18. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now that river of Egypt, that's actually not talking about the Nile River. I thought that for years until Tuesday. (laughs) It's not the Nile River. You got to look in the book of Numbers. It's very clear. It's a smaller river that's kind of where they wandered around for so long, for 40 years. Okay, so from the river of Egypt to the great river, the great river, the Euphrates, then 10 lands, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So God gets specific in this word of promise, and he says, this land is the land I'm going to give you. But in verse 17... In addition to the word of promise, God gives a sign. And it appears that the sign probably came before the promise. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. I was reading this. Lord, what's a fire pot? Okay, easy answer. The fire pot is an oven. And you probably realize they didn't have electricity back then. So that means their ovens looked a little bit different from ours. I don't think they had propane tanks either. Inside of an oven, in order for it to work back then, you got to have a fire. you got to have a fire. I mean, that was true 100, 150 years ago. You'd have to have a fire in the oven. And then you got a flaming torch. And it passes between these pieces. Like, I, I, here, here's what comes to my mind, and forgive your pastor who's a father of young children, but, but here's what comes to my mind, is, is the animated Disney movie Beauty and the Beast, and, and the fork, and the plate, and the clock, and all of those things that are alive in the house of the beast, they're just dancing and serving up food and all these things. Like, like that's the image I get. I'm getting like an oven with four legs, and the legs are feet, and they're walking through That's just what comes to my mind. You probably got something better. But somehow, this oven and this flaming torch passes between these pieces. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that God has given a sign with a covenant. We've got the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. He says, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And here's a rainbow to remind you of this. That's a sign. In two weeks, Job's going to preach on Genesis 17. There's going to be the sign of circumcision. We've got the Mosaic Covenant. There, there's, there's fire and thunder and smoke up on the mountains as God is making the covenant with Moses. And then he gives them two tablets and he's able you know, to show people the tablets. I think about this bread and this cup that is before us today. And I think about this baptism pool. Don't we have a word of promise in the gospel and signs, physical signs that are associated with it? I've I've preached a lot on what these two things mean. And I could do it right now, but I'm not. 
they beautifully point to the gospel, to the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and to the offer of salvation to all of those who would believe and turn to God. They point to the promise of God. Signs are important. In our catechism today, we did question 52. We're restarting next week. Five of the 52 questions have to do with signs of the new covenant. We have five questions about this table, that bread, that loaf, and that baptism. Signs are so important. And the sign that God chooses to give to Abram here is the sign of fire in an oven and in a flaming torch. It reminds me of Moses and the burning bush. It reminds me of when the Israelites were going through the desert. They were wandering through the desert for 40 years and God was leading them in a pillar of fire by night. It reminds me when Elisha was about to be attacked by the king of Aram. And he's way outnumbered and he's wondering, what is he going to do? And and God shows him what's really going on in the spirit. And on every mountainside, all around Elisha, there are flaming, angelic warriors and chariots. There's just fire all around him. It's the armies of God. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God descends. The gospel is preached. Thousands of people believed. And the Bible says that tongues of fire came and rested on people. What is a tongue of fire? I don't know, but God was there. The book of Revelation in chapter 1 and in chapter 19, there's these visions of Jesus. And Jesus' eyes are flaming fire. And it is beautiful In Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12, both tell us very clearly that our God is a consuming fire. See, fire, it purifies things, does it not? Isn't God purifying us? Fire will destroy things. We, We have a family whose home was destroyed several weeks ago across the street from Central Middle School. God will destroy the wicked. Fire lights up the blackness of night and God overcomes the power of evil. When we set a bonfire in our yard, I just want to sit there and look at that thing. Mm-hmm. Don't you just like to stare in the fire? Isn't, doesn't it just grab hold of your gaze? And isn't our God one that is worthy of our gaze? Just as that fire just beautifully keeps going, doesn't our God just continue over and over and over again to reveal His beauty to us? And fire is also very hard to control. I can't grab it. I can't make it do what I want it to do. Now that analogy doesn't work in every way because I can't make the fire of God go out. (laughs) But if I try to grab hold of the fire, I can't grab it. It's like grasping after the wind. If I try to put a fire in a box, what's going to happen to the box? It's going to burn up. Because our God is a consuming fire. I can't contain the fire. I can't master the fire. I can't control the fire. So it's very appropriate that God appears as fire. And notice, who passed between those dead animals? God did. Moses was not participating. In Jeremiah 34 and other parts of the Bible and a lot of ancient literature from a lot of different places, 
when you cut the, when you were making a contract or covenant and you put the animals on different sides, both people who were agreeing to the covenant would walk through. And as they walked between those dead animals, what that spoke, what that said was, if I don't hold up my end of this contract, may I become just like these animals. I'm almost nervous to say this, but it's almost like God is saying, I, be- I believe this is what he's saying, but, but it's difficult to say. I think that God's saying, if I don't do what I've promised, may I become like these animals. Okay. Now, God's not going to die. He's not, you know, some of you saw the movie, God's not dead, okay? And he's not going to die. But yet he's participating in a human, in a ritual that humans are familiar with, and he's doing something that humans do, and when humans do it, they say, if I don't fulfill my part, may I end up like these dead animals. That is an amazing sign of faithfulness on God's part. The amazing thing about examples of God's covenant is that they are the gracious means of relationship with God for a people who deserve to be removed from his presence forever. Let me read that again. The amazing thing about such examples of divine covenant is that they are the gracious means of relationship with God for a people who deserve to be removed from his presence forever by a God who has no need whatsoever in and of himself for such relationship. God initiated this and in his covenant, even though we deserve to be removed from his presence, his covenants, multiple covenants and particularly the new covenant, show us that he wants a relationship with us. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that the creator of the universe, the all-consuming fire, wants a relationship with you? The heart of the covenant is an expression of intimate relationship. You will be my people and I will be your God. And that phrase appears over and over and over again throughout the scripture. You will be my people and I will be your God. I've already made it clear that God starts the covenant. He initiates it. For the 2,000 years after Abram lived and died, God was speaking about a better covenant, a new covenant that would come. And Jesus Christ, in full obedience to the Father, came to earth as a man, fully and completely human, just as we are. And yet at the same time, fully and completely God. A mystery that we can only scratch the surface of. And when, while he was here, he never sinned, not one time. God is seeking relationship with his people. He has done this through covenant 
and all of his promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.